0: Alrighty, today we're here with Matt Huber, professor of geography and the environment, or a professor in the geography and environment mm-hmm. department. Uh, Matt's done a lot of cool stuff. We know him from Twitter, um, Matt, and uh, another account we like to follow, Fred Stafford, who I believe is a an eponym, if that's the correct way to say that word. Um, have been exposing us to a different perspective. That's been pretty fun to get into. Um, so, yeah, Matt, welcome to the DR Task Force podcast. This is a podcast about how taxation is theft. And uh, <laughs> we're really excited to bring you in here. No, of, of, of course not. No, no, no. Um, Interesting. But, um,
1: <laughs> I was like, oh, what did I sign up
2: for? <laughs> I was like, what did I sign up for? Yeah,
0: I was like, oh, that's news to me, but nice. No, no, no. Just, just kidding. But I do think this is going to be fun because a lot of the times the pod is focused on like markets technology all this kind of stuff and sort of stepping back and thinking about how we actually structure the power system as a as an asset uh how it you know works for the public etc um these kind of like higher order things i think it's going to be fun to get into um so uh yeah with that um let's just kind of get rolling um first i think it might be interesting and helpful just to learn a little bit about who you are matt um maybe how you found yourself in this position where you're writing papers on public power um how you wound up here so you know i
3: i did my dissertation on um oil and uh and i was really interested in kind of um i come from this part of geography which is probably not known to many but it's uh Basically, there's a whole subfield called Marxist geography where people are really interested in the relationship between um, capitalism and kind of space, you know, the the spatiality of, of, you know, the economy and but also the relationship with nature, resources, environment and stuff like this. So um, I kind of became obsessed in my dissertation about understanding these sort of deep historical relationships between fossil fuels. And cap and sort of the rise of capitalist social relations. And I decided to focus on oil. I did a, I did a dissertation that became a book that was really more about oil's role in kind of actually transportation, you know, um, uh, oil is central to transportation fuel and kind of creating this very dispersed, decentralized suburban uh, geography, which I argued, kind of powered a sort of privatized way of living and kind of powered this kind of suburban populism that eventually became the base for kind of a shift towards kind of right-wing politics in the United States, which by the way, was very much uh, a fan of that taxation is theft. <laughs> slogan <laughs> was very sort of anti-taxes, anti-government sort of, you know, mm-hmm. stay off my lawn type of. And so I argue that this kind of oil powered privatism kind of, um, you know created the basis for this sort of right-wing shift in in the 1970s um and so anyway I became like an energy geographer I was studying energy and teaching energy and 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 I was very oil focused for a while but I sooner or later I got more interested in electricity and and I got more interested in climate politics and 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 eventually i I found myself realizing that the whole kind of electrify everything and how central electricity is to the decarbonization challenge. And so I'd say for at least, I don't know, like six or seven years, I've been trying to learn a lot more about electricity. It's very different than, than oil and the kind of liquid fuels, uh, space. (laughs) Uh, and it's, I, the more I learn about electricity, the more I realize how much I still have to learn. It's extremely (laughs) complex and, and, um, complicated. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I've been kind of um, really interested in and in, and but, you know, from a similar perspective, trying to understand how electricity kind of came out of the, the this capitalist uh, system, how investors and capitalists were able to sort of um, take control of this electricity system and 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 how, you know, the, the piece I know we're going to talk about one of the, the arguments I try to we try to make is that it's not like, um it's not sort of automatic that we should have for-profit private owners of this highly integrated system that some people say really shouldn't even be a commodity. It should be a just basic service, like similar to the way we treat water infrastructure and you know, sewage infrastructure. These are just basic things that underlie um, you know, everyday reproduction of life, right? So um, so anyway, trying to understand how the electricity system is sort of rooted in these uh, systems of capital and capitalism, and then, of course, to solve climate change, how we might have to sort of wrestle control over that system to to shift it away from this sort of narrow profit orientation um, and, and so forth. So I guess I'll stop there.
1: No, that's awesome. Um, <clears throat> I think one one kind of thing I picked up on in there, I think it's to be fun throughout the episode to like try and really tightly find like the the places we do agree and then don't agree. Because I actually think there's probably a lot of agreement, which I don't know your expectations coming into, but that's certainly (laughs) ours, like on a a lot of different perspectives. But I'm sure there's going to be some divergence as well. But um, one of them is, you know, you kind of starting in oil and now shifting to a lot bigger focus on electricity. So I guess within that, you know, regardless of like how the Electrify Everything movement like plays out, Do you view, because I certainly view that say over the next 40 years, like I say, electricity is going to become the most important commodity in the world. Whereas today it's oil, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's maybe shifting, but it's like petroleum fossil based products. Obviously it used to be coal. Now it's oil. Maybe it's becoming natural gas to an extent, but like ultimately it will be electricity. And so, um, I'd be curious even to know a, like, do you view it the same way? And then like, how did you arrive at that? Um, was it just sort of like, that's the way political trends are moving or is there something even fundamental to like everything, you know, about economics and geography that kind of makes you view that view that in the same way, I guess.
3: Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I, I remember when I was working on oil and everyone was like, the next oil is going to be water, right? Cause we're running out of water and there's going to be water wars and all this stuff. Um, and it kind of fit that analogy fit cause they're, they're both liquids and whatever, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but oil is like oil is a really particular commodity. You know, it's the most traded commodity at a global level. And it, and because of its liquid uh, 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 um, materiality, it is easily transportable across the globe in these tankers, you know? So we know that, um, you know, natural gas is very hard to transport just across oceans. We can do it, but it's very expensive. Um, and, you uh, you know, um, even coal, like I know that you know, coal's just it's not that easy to move around. It's very heavy and people ship it all around But so these kind of markets tend to be more regional and national in nature, and I would say electricity it's very much so. Um it's it, like even least, more
1: local than natural gas. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, and when we're talking about these grid systems, they are you know, it's not like any sort of thing that can just, you know, like, let's offshore production of electricity. <laughs> like, that's just not an option in many, many cases. Um, so
0: nor is there a strategic electricity reserve, you know,
3: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so they're so fundamentally different. But but insofar as I think people think that if we, you know, people talk about we're reaching peak demand for oil. Um, mm-hmm. and, and if that is the case, it's because it's going to be because of electricity and because, uh, electrifying a lot of transportation. Um, so, uh, uh but yeah, that's just, and that's sort of the, the, the thing that I think the essay tries to grapple with is because the system is, is really more like a shared infrastructure, like a grid is like this interconnected, thing that needs heavy amount of planning to balance you know it's just not it's better to not treat it like a commodity that you can just trade around uh like oil or like bananas or something right because <laughs> electrons electrons are not like bananas they have to be you know they're on these wires and everything has to be balanced and it's this this really complicated infrastructure so anyway yeah i think it's um it's a tough analogy but 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 in terms of energy we hope that it will become the main energy source for yeah. for as much stuff as possible moving forward so
0: and maybe just what just interested in one more sort of origin thing um your time in oil and you me- you mentioned this briefly did that coincide with the prominent discussion around peak oil like the version of it that existed like 15 years like ago the or supply
2: so. side discussion
0: yeah, yeah because that was that's like, like a, the f- that's like an interesting time and a yeah. lot of i feel like a lot of people came up in that and yeah. that's what got there me was, into
1: energy was in yeah. high school it was like the, peak the oil, oil
0: the oil drum.com do you any,
3: yeah yeah you spend time on that website
0: i i didn't but i know <laughs> like when i first started getting into this stuff i would like see archive you know articles and stuff I know, like, Chris Nelder spent a lot of time on oh, there. Oh, interesting. Um, but did, yeah, did that inform your perspective at the time at all? Um, it did. And um,
3: so I, I I did my PhD between 2004 and 2009. So <laughs> that was, it was, it was, literally, it was yeah, like right peak, there. yeah. Peak, peak oil stuff. And yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> Was like 2007 was the time cover article or whatever i think I maybe, maybe yeah it was 08 but yeah
3: 08 is when the price spiked to like 150 dollars a barrel and
1: and then we started fracking but you know yeah that... <laughs> and then it
3: just went away yeah <laughs> and and one of the fascinating things that i think is the whole discourse was informed by you know this M m king hubbard this this geologist petroleum geologist who predicted the peak of American petroleum production in 1956, he said, it's going to peak at about 1970. And when you look at the graph, it did peak at 1970 and it started going down. But, but then but then in 2013 or thereabouts, it just went whoosh. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because <laughs> of fracking. Like it, the the whole peak oil discourse was premised on that Hubbard, had correctly predicted the peak, but the fracking just
0: destroyed
3: it. Right yeah narrative so anyway what's um, like
0: what's the lesson in that what
3: well to me um so just to give a little background like i was struggling because just not to get too much in the weeds but the the kind of standard marxist approach to these questions is that any invocation of scarcity and running out of stuff is sort of deemed malthusian or rooted in this kind of thomas malthus sort of you know, scarcity mongering, that's really trying to like impose limits on um, poor people and things like this. So Marxists have a very sort of allergic reaction to sort of s- scarcity talk in general. And so I was kind of but I was like surrounded by it. I was reading, you know, Richard Heinberg and James Howard Kunstler and these peak oil people. And I was like, well, you know, it's kind of looking like this is happening. But um yeah. <laughs> The more I studied the oil industry, I sort of realized that actually the oil market is not really, there's never, production levels are never really at the geological sort of capacity of what we can produce. And the real problem for the oil market for much of the 20th century was just overproduction and glut and kind of overcapacity. And and so they created all these institutions to try to limit um, how much oil was being produced. And, 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 and so once I started seeing, like, actually, for much of the history, the problem of oil is not scarcity, but abundance, um, mm-hmm. I started to become more suspicious of the peak oil discourse. And I started to um, uh, feel like, you know, this is just... And, and and it comes up back over and over again. You know, as early as the 1920s, people were claiming we were about to run out of oil. And so, um, yeah, I felt kind of vindicated when... Um, the fracking boom came around and, and everyone stopped talking about it. All right, <laughs> you, you, I mean...
0: you you heard it here. Matt Huber loves fracking. <laughs> <laughs> no, it no, helps no. my, uh, my priors. It helps my ideological
3: priors. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, well, that yeah, that definitely, I think, gives us a good sense of where, where you're coming from. James, do we want to do the standard questions? I, do, I mean,
1: yeah. I do, there's so I, much I, I want to get into there. But I know, yes. but
2: I do. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> I do think we need to do the like. So normally, I guess we would, when most people come on to our Distributed Energy Resource Podcast, there's a general assumption that they are um, really into distributed energy. <laughs> <laughs> so we ask people, when did you get dirt pilled but i guess our question for you is Mm. are you dirt pilled like how how do you feel about
3: and if not why not yeah yeah it's a long conversation i think (laughs) well yeah
2: and let's say at the highest level i think we're going to get very deep into a lot of this during the conversation but like general reaction to distributed energy
3: so i like most you know i started uh in college, just I became radicalized by environmental crisis and becoming worried about climate change and environmental. So I I slowly but surely sort of adopted all the normal environmentalist ideas. And one of those is that, you know, we're going to move towards more distributed, decentralized, renewable energy um, uh, system. And I sort of, uh, I feel like I was just sort of had that knee jerk idea in my head for forever and and it was only um, recently um I started to think more carefully about the kind of relationship between um a historical sort of overlap between the environmental movement which is sort of celebrating this like let's break up all these big uh industrial systems and utilities and, and unions and all and and big even monopolies and corporations let's sort of smash those and unleash the market, right. And, um, and, uh, sorry. So first the environmentalists are like, let's break these up and and create this kind of much more small scale, uh, small beautiful, uh, you know, energy efficiency plus, uh, you know, smaller scale, uh, solar panels, wind turbines distributed throughout the landscape, community owned local, all this kind of stuff became the kind of, um, the, the the vision of a, the sort of vision of the future that shaped environmentalist thought starting in the 1970s. But what I was about to say is in the 1970s, also, you have this move um, politically towards what we call sort of neoliberalism or kind of free market mm-hmm. ideology, which very much overlaps with this. This sort of let's let's smash all these kind of big, rigid institutions, obviously the state being the biggest one, but also things like utility, things like unions, the this sort of centralized, kind of highly organized uh state uh systems, which were really, you know, like the what drove the kind of post-World War II sort of Keynesian consensus was these sort of large cooperations between big unions big big government big corporations and 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 so the free market critique of like we need to kind of have much more nimble smaller decentralized um, market systems and 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 ultimately like the most powerful ideology of decentralization is that we should really have the price mechanism be driving our um, allocation of goods and services much more than any kind of planning or any kind of Centralized coordination. So I started to see that, like, oh, actually, there's a lot of overlap between like people like Milton Friedman and these neoliberals and Fred Friedrich Hayek, and people like Amory Lovins who are also, you know, arguing for like a similar, like, let's let's sort of smash these Mm -hmm. big institutions that, by the way, have been part of like one of the rare parts in capitalist history where we had relative. Uh, redistribution of wealth we had relative equality between uh the rich and the middle class but um you know in the 1970s is very everyone sort of accepted like this is we're in this crisis of stagnation we need to we need a new kind of vision and I think um uh I, that's where I see like Amory Lovins and in and, and and Jimmy Carter too like Jimmy Carter was all about deregulation before you know Reagan even took uh control so so anyway once I started to piece that kind of connection together, I started to um, sort of see that, well, actually maybe um, this heavily centralized uh, grid system is is not as bad as we've made it out to be. And, and um, it gets a kind of bad rap in environmental circles, but that um, when we're thinking about electricity as this, fundamental service that underlies everything we do, it's still mainly centralized power plants, central a grid system that's really keeping the system running. And, and, and you know, um, people have called the the electricity grid of the 20th century like one of the, you know, top 10 inventions of human history. Yeah. Like it's this incredible super machine. Mm-hmm. And um and and then you start to think from a labor left perspective, you start to realize like, well, actually, Um, these much more centralized power plants are much more conducive to labor organizing. They have much higher union density, much more capacity to create uh, long-term, sustainable, high-income, high-skilled jobs, unionized jobs. Um, And so um, I started to think it might be worth pushing back this kind of, against this sort of what I think is somewhat of a utopic vision of this sort of decentralized uh, energy future because again um I still think much of our electricity system is still um mainly powered by centralized uh yeah and in the piece we cite we we just dove into the the energy information administration data and it's about 86 percent of of the United States electricity uh, generation is still coming from centralized types uh of 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 power plants you know not yeah. but also hydro big hydro mm-hmm. <laughs> And you start to look at like what countries have really decarbonized at a large scale and and, and, and you you see it's really like, you know, a combination of big hydro and nuclear that have really like gotten results um, for the most part. So anyway, so that's a long winded say like sort of that journey. That
2: kind you're
3: of. actually like under pilled. Yeah, like- <laughs> <laughs> first we met that.
1: Yeah, yes. you're you're a cypher. You, you took the blue pill after already Yeah, you already in the matrix. Then you were like, I'm out. Actually, <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I do. It is something I have been wondering, and I'm sure we'll get deeper into this, but. Just sort of distinguishing like a physically decentralized system and a decent like a centralized plant plan system. In that, mm-hmm. you could still have a centrally planned distributed grid. Like you could have a centrally planned battery in someone's home if you thought, you know, resilience or the backup capabilities of that battery and solar right. did something which sort like a like centralized plant power did, can't. Right? Yeah, right. You know, there's or even co-op models. Like I'm sure we'll dig deeper into this, but i guess is there any like sort of opposition to just the idea of like locally cited resources or is it more just the planning that it you know getting the resource there that you have you focus on primarily we're trying to re-derpill you to like yeah essentially planned (laughs) distributed grid would that be possible
3: i guess well yeah you know the more (laughs) i looked into it and again i i still think this is somewhat a, a utopia but um you hear like, you know, we're going to build um, so much, we're, we're really going to have to overbuild uh, solar and wind all across the country so that you can have, you know, people have called for, we need to create this kind of super grid that's, you know, at the scale of the United States, break down all these, <laughs> these, what are their five grid regions, um, break yeah, them all down, make one super grid and then you can always know that it's windy somewhere, it's sunny somewhere. Well, it's not, you know, sometimes it's not sunny somewhere, you know, <laughs> <problem>. but <laughs> but but in any event, um, it's windier at night often. So that helps. And so you can have like and again, like James, you're right. Like you would need heavy central planning to like always be dispatching from the regions that are windy and sunny. So this this idea of like heavily uh, decentralized um, governance kind of actually doesn't fit well with what we would need to have uh, um, somewhat like a 24 seven reliable um, uh, sort of renewable solar and wind based grid. It would need more central planning uh, mm-hmm. if we wanted it to work at a large sort of national scale. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's anything, um, you know, you can have central planning with a much more distributed energy system and that's, yes, yeah. that's, that's okay. And so, uh,
0: something Oh, uh, you, you first.
1: No, go ahead. I was just, well, just the fact that you brought up solar and wind, I am just curious because normally when um, someone is more like centrally planned, I guess a bit more like public power often gravitate to nuclear, but you do bring up solar and wind. Is that from an expectation that we're like solar and wind maxis or do you actually see <laughs> like a a 24-7 renewable grid as part of a centrally planned grid or are you like nuclear is the way to do it you know do you kind of fall on those lines i guess as far as yeah the resource
3: mix itself in my journey of becoming (laughs) underpilled uh i've become much more nuclear uh, friendly and again like every environmentalist i just grew up with this you know being sort of in, in the totally embedded with this idea that nuclear is bad and it's yeah yeah and, it, and again it, it's it's heavily centralized I was just listening to your podcast with no and it's like statist and possibly authoritarian like all these kind <laughs> of associations so uh I had a very sort of knee-jerk anti-nuclear um but now no I I just um I've become much more favorable to it and the piece we argue that um nuclear is often, I think the most compelling argument against it right now is market-based. It co- yeah. costs too much. <laughs> and um, uh, what we try to argue is that um, a lot of the energy debate now is shaped by market logics and uh, logics of what, and again, sorry, Marxist terms like exchange value, you know, what's cheaper, what's the cheapest energy. And and we try to argue that socialists are much more concerned with the not the the price or exchange value of of, of a commodity, but its use value and what it actually can materially deliver yeah. to a system. And we try to argue that while renewables like solar and wind are incre- have become incredibly cheap in a very narrow kind of, um, you know, levelized cost of yeah. energy sort of framework. um when you look at their use value, clearly their use value is highly limited by their intermittency and and, and the fact that they're going to need um, either forms of storage that aren't really commercially viable yet in terms of long duration storage, or they're going to need, um, uh, you know, like this super grid utopia I was just talking about. And so that use value is really a problem when you're trying to be a, thinking more like a socialist, like how do we plan? an integrated social grid system that keeps energy running 24 seven for the people. (laughs) And, uh, and so on the other hand, nuclear, while it might be problematic from an exchange value market reason from a use value perspective, it's just incredible, right? It has this incredible energy density, like this tiny uranium pellets um, can deliver as much energy as a ton of coal or whatever. Um, It, 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 Produces incredible amounts of energy on tiny bits of land, right? You know, so the land use issue isn't, and, um, and it's, and obviously for climate change, it's once you build these things, it's it's incredibly, uh, it's zero carbon energy, right? And um, and again, historically in terms of countries that have really made huge strides strides in decarbonization, nuclear has got an incredible track record, so from from the perspective of like oh my god we we um we have this climate emergency and we need to do something it seems like it's it's sort of depressing that we actually have this technology that's been around since the 60s and we know how to do it and and it's it, it could literally decarbonize the whole grid we could just build nuclear plants um but we're not because the market says we can't, and so essentially, you know, if 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 this is a planetary emergency, the market is just telling us we can't do these things. So, um, and I don't so, want to beat be No, just, I. Oh, go ahead. I don't want to be too much of the 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 nuke bro guy though, because um, we do say in the piece like renewables are are great, and particularly we think. There's, you know, we should really be building new, renewables in like very obvious regions like the desert yeah. southwest and offshore wind and the the sort of plain states, which is often called the wind belt, like that makes a lot of sense. Um, but we think like in terms of reliability, low carbon, like nuclear is just makes a lot more sense for many other reasons. Yeah, I mean, so I wanna... my
0: calling oh, <laughs> you first. Yeah,
2: no. I was... So I want to ask about I find so I think one of the things that we've talked about before on the podcast and actually I don't know how far you got in the NOAA episode or what you've heard on like I think our pod is like pretty we're like pretty pro-nuclear um as a group, but I actually when you said the sort of like utopic, you know, super grid, that's kind of how I feel about nuclear too. Yeah. Like if someone's like, what's more likely to get built out, like the super grid or nuclear power plants, and I'm like, it's a toss-up. Like (laughs) Like both of them are kind of needed, um, but yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, really yeah. know like our capacity to do them. And I guess yeah, maybe yeah. you would say, like, well, that's just because like we're valuing the exchange mm-hmm. value wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm like curious, like, why you feel like that's a more likely solution than the super grid.
3: Um, well. I think, um, in terms of like demonstrated reliability, the nuclear just has a better track record. This super grid, I call it utopic because it doesn't exist in reality. Like <laughs> you, have, you can't find you a, know, country a transmission's
2: where extremely hard to build. So, like that's that that, too, that's yeah. Sort of like why I well, you don't, don't think, think Mark it, Chapin,
1: Jacobson's really models
3: are, are are spot on? I mean, don't get me <laughs> started. On yeah, yeah. So, so like you know, France exists. Like France did yeah. this and a yeah. super grid doesn't. So, um, again, that's what's so frustrating. Like France did this mm. almost 50 years ago. And, 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 so in terms of what we could do, um, to solve climate change, like we know we could do that and it would be done. Right. Um, but again, yeah, uh, in terms of the, the actually existing power relations of our electricity system, it's driven by capitalists and it's driven by a deregulated, uh, market, uh, system for the most part, uh, apart from some interesting regions in the South or whatever. And, um, and so in that space, yeah, no one is really that interested in, in investing in nuclear and building lots of nuclear because yeah. they, uh, there's a lot more money to be made and economic incentives to build a lot of renewables. So in that sense, yeah, it's completely utopic because it's completely out of step with where the power relations are. Um, I will say that uh, my co-author, uh, Fred, wrote a piece uh, that calls for a nuclear new deal, a uh, green nuclear yeah. new deal. And he points out that the only nuclear plant to come online this century was the Watts Bar plant brought online by the Tennessee Valley Authority. So the only right. the only entity that's been that sees this as something we should invest in is is a public power uh, organization right. that's really got a much broader mission in their investment plans for uh their their grid which is not just about making profits for investors it's about this sort of larger public mission of reliability and um and you know offering cheap electricity to you know also industry and and communities in the south and stuff like that yeah. so um they were the only ones that that found it um i mean obviously there's a lot of private investors trying to get nuclear off the ground right now, but they're the ones that did it in the 21st century. And so that yeah. I think it's telling.
0: I, I think we've always kind of supported that view too. Like the, the only nuclear view I've ever found to be kind of silly is the, like the nuclear maxi libertarian, which just doesn't, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I find it very confusing. No, and uh, That's yeah. just not real, but yeah. no, I, I think, I think I would I would totally agree. Like if if a the path of sort of like nationalizing or or in some way making public the power system is one we can take, nuclear is like a really obvious option. Um
1: I think we're always more just like focused on making sure that the people arguing for nuclear are putting forth like cogent arguments. Mm-hmm. Like I do see a lot of kind of like neoliberal techno optimists who otherwise are like completely divergent like are allergic to a word like socialism kind of Mm. being nuclear bros and i'm always like like what's going on here like come on like just read a book like (laughs) it's like (laughs) you know and but you know we were recording like uh two days ago just like the three of us and duncan was like if tva was like we're gonna build 10 nuclear plants we'd be like that's great like yes like go do that you know and that's um they actually said they
3: want to build 20. they just announced well there you go (laughs) Um, but (laughs) 20 small modular so different but
1: and we do always say that like to us the defining like death knell for nuclear was Perpa in 1978 not Mm -hmm. like over regulation and that's not a value judgment on it it's just to say that yes private you know deregulation and kind of competition on marginalized cost bidding of power yeah. Makes it very, very difficult yeah. to build nuclear. And that, you know, so to, to build you,
0: like an 80 year mega project. Right. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, like it's no just, investor
1: yeah. is gonna take like a 20 year view on a 50, 80 year asset when the Fed is like designing an entire uh economy around like two percent inflation year over year. You're like, no one mm-hmm. is gonna make that bet. So um oh. I don't know, just to say that uh, you know, maybe. Uh, it, it may not be as apparent on like the NOAA episode, but that's kind of what we're trying to get at. Is like that is a cogent view on nuclear, and it's it it's a workable model. We have seen it work, like to your point, yeah, uh, in France and even in the U.S. Uh, post World yeah. War II. So
3: yeah, um, and Sweden too. It's like you know a combo of hydro, and nuclear, um, renewables. Um, yeah, great model. And yeah, so most places where it's worked, it's t- it's taken public investment and you know a kind of socialization of those upfront costs and then and i think
0: critically also like the industry as well right yeah. like yeah. you to to make building a bunch of nuclear plants like really kind of work you need you know you need the same foundries like casting the parts you need the same labor force like really know how to do this right otherwise you just there's some point at which the cost matters and if you just like build one nuclear plant and never build one again Right. you're going to get a really tough plant to build. Right. Um,
2: and operate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. that, that as well.
0: But like the French model was like, they just rolled out a ton of the same thing mm-hmm. from the same people over and over again. And mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. So what do you, I, I'd be curious then what you think of um, SMRs, right? Because mm-hmm. I, at least at the narrative level, kind of see them as the nuclear industry's answer to how do we coexist with markets right these are going to be smaller factory made like a project finance shop could just you know plunk half a billion dollars and do it and get a return in 20 years kind of thing um i also think there's big technological merits so it's not to say it's only that but i'd just be curious like the the sort of like build big nukes socialist community (laughs) how do you how do you see smr's
3: there's kind of, I think, a kind of dumb, polarizing debate. There's these people who are just like, you know, the, I guess, AP1000. Those are sort of the older, the bigger sort of ones that we know how to build. And um, and, and there's some people that are just completely partisan to that. Um, and, uh, uh, and and so they think SMRs are kind of a distraction or whatever. But um, I'm kind of like, I think either way, it, it's fine. I do think... I will say that the the SMRs do feel like this kind of like attempt to sort of graft a nuclear version of this again, like small, small Mm -hmm. scale distributed, you know, um, energy kind of thing that fit in with this larger neoliberal allergic reaction to bigness in general, like, like big projects, like building, you know, like the original TVA, like building whole infrastructures for whole regions. And Really investing in uh, industrial uh, development for um, the economy. So, and to me, like that's what the climate crisis is sort of desperately calling for us to do: sort of big infrastructure projects, like big long-term things that do are going to la- last like eighty years. I was just engaging on Twitter with a, a a project called the Living New Deal, and it's a project you can Google their website. They just catalog all the projects that the New Deal built that are still providing use values for communities like libraries, yeah. like highways, like dams and electricity and, and all this stuff. And, and so the New Deal was this period where, you know, in the United States where we were not shy about building big things and investing in long term infrastructure. Right. Um, and, and that is it seems so clear that the climate crisis is calling for. Drastic restructuring of our infrastructure and uh, uh, and long term planning of that infrastructure. And so, you know, if but so if I if 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 people are really excited about SMRs to try to fit it into this existing kind of neoliberal small scale ideology, that's great. But I think it doesn't that that ideology is what's actually limiting us from solving the climate crisis. Is is what I would say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it reminds me of the like. I I personally think the the publicly owned centrally planned grid option would include a lot of distributed energy. And I actually Mm -hmm. mean quite distributed, not even like big solar, but like little solar here and there. Mm -hmm. It would be a lot of other stuff too, Um, but like similar to how that word can take sort of like a political and or capital meaning or like a technological meeting. I think that there's the same thing at play with SMRs versus, you know, big old school nukes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, you probably could make the case that like the, the grid planner might be interested in SMRs for a sake of like just speed and ease that, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know, um, right. It's, it's just like, I feel like so often we tend to kind of like, bunch those two perspectives together, like who owns it and controls it and plans it? And like, what does it look like? When like, they're kind of different, you know what I mean? And so what I what I actually really wanted to ask you before we got into this. um, So yeah, we we focus a lot on like, the very small, right? Um, The things that are connected to even the end of the distribution grid, or like Mm -hmm. at an industrial site, like an old school, you know, co generation facility, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um. One thing I'd be interested in is backup generators, right? This is an unavoidable part of the grid. No no matter what technology one likes. The lines go down and hospitals need power, things like yeah. that. Um would in the this this system, I guess the state would would provide them to <laughs> to critical facilities, to communities mm-hmm. that have worse reliability. Like is that a is that a centrally planned, publicly funded DER that could make sense in your yeah, world bringing
3: this up reminded me that um when that we've had these crises like uh winter storm uri in texas where the the grid collapses and people are without power and then california a lot of blackouts um and you saw the the sale of these generators sort of go through the roof and so everyone is kind of acting as if like, oh, well, the grid doesn't work anymore. So I have to be sort of my own private um, survivalist um, bunker with my generator. And so that to me is like um, a really disturbing trend. Because again, the thing I think is so cool about the grid is it connects. It's this socialized uh, system that connects everyone and we all share. Um, so when people want feel like they need to sort of de-link from it and create their own little private um, you know like Elon Musk even was sort of like get your power wall your solar panels and you can kind of unplug from society right um uh so but you're right like I think that that would be the cool thing about a a, a sort of more of public oriented socialist planning perspective would be that yeah we there are certain institutions that that when the power when the grid goes down need power so hospitals and maybe schools and maybe some other crucial infrastructure. So yeah, why not like totally um, distribute free uh, uh, backup generators to those crucial institutions? But, you know, like that doesn't mean everyone in a mansion gets gets their own generator, right? Because that would be really inefficient. And so we would want to use planning for, you know, efficiency, right? right? And I,
1: Um, you know, I I would say within that too, is like, obviously, you know, we are doing, uh this in a market context but what it's really proving is that the I think what one of the things that's so exciting about DERs is that while they do provide that like individualized or even community benefit which we talk about a lot like when there is a disaster when there's not a disaster there's a huge social benefit to these resources like where you can aggregate up a thousand power walls and use that as you know, a lower cost resource to the grid, or maybe we're using, you know, again, kind of exchange of of, uh, value terms instead of service. But you could, you know, if we're saying, okay, energy market prices are high, we're going to dispatch a thousand power walls instead of a big clunky natural gas system. What that is still doing is like providing a cheaper overall service on the grid. And so you could just as easily say, take that capability, out of the hands of, of a company responding to market signals and into the, the hands of like a central planner. So I don't know. I I think even like, it it does provide, like it can provide, I guess a social benefit in the way like a big centralized power. And I would would
2: go even beyond that from like the social benefit of it being cheaper to the social benefit of you can provide resilience to a community while also making the grid run more efficiently right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if you if you do distribute batteries to let's say like every bodega corner in new york city Mm
4: -hmm.
2: and the power goes out and then people have a place to go and charge Mm -hmm. their phone Mm -hmm. um and maybe that allows you to build you know your nuclear plant instead of you know two gigawatts it's 1.8 gigawatts right like it's probably not changing like the scale of the fact that you built a large nuclear plant Mm -hmm. um but we're
1: putting the we're we're putting the hard sell on.
2: Yeah, but it, no, but I, I do think there's something to, you know, um, yeah, I like post Hurricane Sandy. I was living in, in Princeton, New Jersey, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I would like go to the university during the day and like charge up all of my stuff and then mm-hmm. like go home at night, like hmm. sit in the dark, watch <laughs> my movie that I downloaded. Um, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um you know, with my roommates drinking wine, like but the university
3: like, had like a
2: university has a microgrid so they it, have a backup generator,
3: but is it it's not batteries is it is it a diesel natural gas? Or?
2: um it's so
0: it's a cogen plant it's right? a cogen plant so yeah gas, so it's not, gas. yeah so it's
2: yeah. gas um at this point, they probably have some other things integrated but yeah, so but general point, right of like, the ability to like go to a community and like have mm-hmm. a spot within a community to to like have those services when the grid goes down because there are gonna still be hurricanes and things that happen, mm-hmm. um, can provide that like ex- yeah, like that that social value that I think mm-hmm. is important regardless of the cost value. Yeah. Um it's actually yeah. one of the big issues we have with with how like New York State runs some of the like community solar veter we've talked a lot about this right where they're like it incentivizes things to be in front of the meter which actually like hurts the ability to provide resilience right um and so we talk a lot about like community whether there should be like community adders that are truly like resilience based to sort Mm. of like promote Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. um so yeah, I'm curious like how you think about those things. Cause to me, like that's part of why I love distributed energy so much. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I think it's the only, I don't think any of us are like DR only people. We're not like mm-hmm. expecting <laughs> the rooftop solar to like save us um from mm-hmm. climate change. Uh and I obviously come from a utility background, so I'm like pretty pro utility. Um, although I'd be very curious to get into utility versus public power at some point. Um <laughs> But yeah, how do you, like, how do you view that and, like, think about the benefits, like, the community benefits there and, like, whether you can plan that in a public way or if that, like, is inherently driven somehow by, Mar- yeah, by markets? Yeah, That's a think, lot of questions. Sorry. No, I think, um,
3: I think you're, you, obvious, like, I think having those kind of local community resources for when you have a crisis and the grid goes down um is really valuable um uh i guess i um i i do have questions i don't i don't even know ask Um, your
2: questions
3: (laughs) like my sense is that these batteries don't last all that long so i I, i'm i'm kind of curious like because again like when the grid goes down people go out and buy a bunch of diesel generators which so last a long time so i'm wondering like uh, if you
2: have the right mix, like let's not yeah. take a hundred percent of cases, but you yeah. can create solar battery that can run, let's say, like a re- certainly like a refrigerator mm-hmm. and lights, lights, mm-hmm. um, like, un- kind of un- unlimited nature. Okay. If you have the right, I mean, Duncan does a lot of energy modeling for our microgrids, so he can probably tell you more on different sites. But, but I think, and obviously, like in some cases, I'm saying like if there's assuming no gas backup um but even then let's say you had solar storage and you didn't have 24 7 you could still have power for 10 hours a day right mm-hmm. like and it would refuel each day um which is one of the benefits over a backup generator where sometimes getting the fuel after you've yeah. you know gone through your three days is difficult um and then
3: what if it's you know, not sunny though
2: just throwing it out there. Yeah. No, no, no. There was actually recently... <laughs> it's a I was reading a re- I was reading a paper recently that was looking specifically at like insulation of regions for like the three days after hurricanes. Mm. Um. And it is, yeah, it, it is like something that definitely becomes more of a problem. But again, you have to think about like, how are you sizing the battery? And like, what are your essentials when your power goes out?
0: Mm-hmm. Right? I I mean, I, I would also report though that like there's for a critical facility there's nothing really wrong with the diesel backup generator like, oh yeah
2: no i'm not hos- talking
0: hospitals right. gotta yeah. run like yeah you know, hospitals
2: should 100 like, have a diesel generator yeah
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah like
2: i'm not yeah. arguing and that it we
1: shouldn't. always we always <laughs> say basically that like solar and batteries are like less diesel <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or like mm-hmm. you know so even if you do need the full mix like the complete picture is still like uh lower cost for the same Service option in that, yeah. like the capex of solar and storage does offset the the diesel yeah. you're not using now, even though you still need the diesel generator. Like it all kind of works out.
2: Or it's like the- I used to intern at a wastewater treatment plant that um mm. that they when the weather was bad they would run the diesel generators in case the power went out.
4: Mm. Wow! <laughs> wow! Yeah. Um, <laughs> because
2: it took fifteen minutes to get Hedgy. the generator running. Right. Okay. And so it was like yeah. you could just size a battery for 15 minutes.
3: Uh-huh. Yeah,
0: they and did. You that don't UPS, need to yeah.
2: yeah. And like, and then you just don't need to I run, I think run this generator. So I think there's like definitely benefits. And also like if you're talking like downtown areas, especially, you don't there's a lot of negative effects to running like generators in Dense urban areas,
3: polluting. Yeah, for sure. A lot of people die from using generators too. Yeah, because Mm -hmm.
0: yeah, that's especially in emergencies where they'll you just sort of like rig one up in your garage. Yeah, exactly. Think about it. I so like zooming out on this thing. I I would I would throw out there like I think there's a very real and like beneficial future where the TVA deploys twenty nuclear plants (laughs) and a shitload (laughs) of distributed batteries, Mm -hmm. right? and those batteries help the nuclear plants deal with like fluctuations in load like yeah, load balancing like that. Yeah. Those batteries also help provide backup which is good and the batteries also help um, help the end points of the grid electrify new loads faster, right? Because we all know building wires is a long
2: long process
0: right God, so I, yeah. I guess yeah I, in my view it's like these things are very complementary right like the big base load like firm asset putting lots of power out there exactly and then like at the far edges of the grid mm-hmm. you know dealing with the the peaking and resilience problem like with one thing um i could see i think it would be awesome if if the power engineers at tva and the uh, whoever funds TVA I guess the federal government yeah, uh, yeah. said said' Let's and their r- their ratepayers fund them so
3: yeah they, yeah they make a lot of money um and they they make a profit I think actually but they just invest yeah, in, just you know, yeah, the, yeah the publicness of it all but the, I I might have this wrong but um I know the TVA has been I want to say investing in building out charging infrastructure all across mm-hmm. the the valley because they actually see it again they have they have this like larger like regional development mission that they see themselves mm-hmm. as sort of and they see that as it as as linking up i think I, I might i'm going off a very deep memory here but i think that they see it as connected to the emergent um, investment in battery production that's happening in the south, right?
0: Yeah, which is and very they, interesting. Yeah, and they
3: see like we can link in with these, with again, with industry and kind of like provide an outlet for this battery production and kind of create this kind of new infrastructure that could also, I think, as you're suggesting, like actually help the grid with stability and um, yeah, um, and and all this kind of stuff. So so yeah, I think they're they're already they're already doing it. So. Cool, i mean cool. maybe not to if, the scale scale we would like but
1: all right if you guys are cool with it i was gonna go like a yeah, huge do pivot it. here
2: great <laughs> i'm ready
3: i do want to get to the I'm, utilities question at some point that oh
1: that man out. Yeah, we can
2: so. come back to it
1: all right cool um so you mean the profit driven utilities sorry no we don't sorry. i don't i had wanna... to drop that one because <laughs> no, no, i'm Colleen and I have a nice back and forth on utilities over uh, over time here. So wow, yeah. I'm excited for that one. Um, but uh, so it's funny, like part of, I, I, I'm i going to try and like connect a few dots that maybe seem disparate, but I, I want to get to like a more, this has been like a very local view of like the grid edge in a way. And like, how do you view central planning of the grid? But I want to get more into like, american positioning you know the politics that exist today like uh, the actual paths to doing some of this stuff um and it has been kind of interesting to me or, or uh that you you kind of keep saying that this like neoliberal view of like the small and the central when when i view the the like the end of like the neoliberal dream in a lot of ways is like some of the most enormously powerful and centralized institutions. That just happened to be profit-driven, like ever conceived on the planet, which you look at like BlackRock and a -hmm. lot of the like big global banks and global corporations, and they're not public, you know, they're not public institutions. They are, I mean, they're publicly traded, but a a lot of them. Um, And so I kind of, I don't know, there's a lot I really kind of am allergic to in the current like instantiation of like neoliberal view on like free markets when it's just like these enormously powerful institutions that are actually kind of controlling the flow of of capital and everything um that i think there would be a lot of like maybe alignment on my perspective in yours Mm -hmm. um but and one of them namely of like is like how raw of a deal labor has gotten in yeah you know, in the U.S. post 1970s um, in particular. And here's where kind of I I have like a a view that the thing that did really happen and like turned what was going on globally as far as like the economy goes is um, we did hit peak oil in the 1970s of the U.S. at the same time that like the globe had really caught up from a demand perspective and like kind of post-industrialization post-World War II and all these new sources like in the Middle East also started kind of those powers emerged and what essentially happened is like now you have a global labor force reindustrialized like globe mm-hmm. and where the U.S. used to have an advantage for cheap energy now it was about cheap labor because everyone had access to cheap energy because of like the global system that we had built. Mm -hmm. And so when you start seeing like the U.S. essentially like decide to offshore manufacturing labor, everything to cheaper labor pools, Mm -hmm. what allowed that to happen was sort of cheap energy existed everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And one, you may not agree with that perspective, but I I do view like energy as like the central kind of thing that changed in the 70s that also changed the story for labor in the U.S., yeah. And um when you look at electricity, it it is a it's a deglobalizing force. Like if you kind of do mm-hmm. use solar and wind or nuclear, or whatever you're using to create cheap energy at home again, like you'll in a way like naturally reindustrialize the US, mm-hmm. uh, because you can't ship power to Saudi Arabia exactly. the same way Saudi Arabia can ship oil here. And so right. um I don't know, I guess the like the question there would be in this sort of transition from like oil and electricity, like how do you view that in the context of the kind of existing like neoliberal global banking corporate order that, that we now live in um, and like how we sort of do make this shift like back to like a pre 1970s, political economy in a way that was a lot more like new deal centrally planned u.s first not globalized sort of perspective Mm -hmm. on the world i guess Um, yeah so i don't know there's a lot there but there's just like a lot you've been touching on that i'd I'd love to see if if there's like a way you kind of pull this through and into like what the way forward is
3: yeah so um first of all like i think We should talk about the neoliberal ideology of free markets, that we should have a lot of small, we should have perfectly competitive markets where there are a lot of small entrepreneurs competing and no one has pricing power and everyone's got- That's not uh, what happens. (laughs) Exactly. But that's sort of the ideology. uh, And and what's very interesting, as you're suggesting, is as soon as this ideology took hold in the 70s, you, you actually start to see more and more- concentration and yeah uh, of of you know monopolization and oligopolization of the market and lots of mergers and acquisitions and and then um and so it's it's sort of uh is this ideology but it's actually much more of this just class project where capitalists have figured out how to organize political power to benefit them right. and 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 also heavily concentrate wealth and power into fewer and fewer hands so it's um Yeah. So uh, but the I think that the other thing you're talking about is is very interesting, which is this cheap oil transportation economy has allowed sort of globalization to be possible. I mean, I was actually just I teach a seminar on sort of political economy of capitalism to undergrads and just talking about how cheap energy allowed you know they they would catch salmon in the pacific northwest ship it to uh vietnam to be packaged and then ship it back <laughs> to <laughs> like, like so los insane. angeles yeah, yeah it's absolutely crazy it's um, crazy and that's all cheap oil right um right and and to to be honest like i we put it in the piece just a little a quick line which is everyone is so excited about how cheap solar is and how it's just it's gotten so cheap right and it, well, from my perspective, that might have something to do with uh the, the solar panel production in China and the heavily yeah, exploited uh labor there. Um and, and 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 that too is not possible without cheap uh cheap oil to transport those solar panels 100%. around the world. Um so yeah, we're and, we have and not been... only
1: that, like our trade deficit with China is supported by like the kind of dollar backed like Mm. petro industrial complex that the U S like hegemony exit. Like that's why it exists is because of oil in the first place. So we wouldn't even have access to those cheap panels without like this kind of globalized system where oil is the lifeblood of that system yeah in in my view
3: i don't know well that's the title of my first book lifeblood
1: there you go go. (laughs) i'm excited to read it
3: yeah
4: (laughs) well
2: well, but i was like james has been waiting to bring up the petrodollar this like whole podcast (laughs) yeah yeah, i (laughs) I was i was like wait i was just waiting i I let (laughs) us get
1: deep so you know other people didn't tune out five minutes
3: in but Yeah, yeah that's a that's a long conversation the petrodollar stuff but yeah but i think the the globalization in terms of how it's attacked um, industrial labor is a big part of the story, and I haven't really talked about it much. But I also see this um, again this this move towards um, decentralized energy actually, and and deregulation of electricity has also actually been kind of an attack on the heavily unionized industrial labor regime that that really. You know, we call it the utility consensus um, where, you know, big investor owned utilities kind of got these monopoly territories. But it also was pretty beneficial for unions in, in that system because yeah. it was very easy to organize in these kind of um, monopoly territories. And and so unions actually uh, saw deregulation as a threat to their their unions, their membership, and they resisted that for that reason. Um, and, 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 and so, and there's also just this sort of thorny problem that if we are going to move away from centralized power plants, which have long-term unionized, sustainable jobs, uh, towards a more kind of solar wind distributed energy, uh, where even where we have utility scale solar farms and wind farms, those infrastructures create a lot of construction jobs, but they're. Yeah. Temporary. Not not a lot right. of jobs. Jobs. Yeah. yeah. Not a lot of. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah. ongoing. Yeah. yeah. We use minutes, this. Yeah. Operations. We, we cite this great Lee Harris, this amazing reporter from American Prospect, was looking at a solar farm in Texas. That you know, it's creating eighteen hundred IBEW union contracted jobs to build the solar farm. But when it's built, it's going to create two permanent jobs. <laughs> two. <laughs> That's, yep.
1: It's insane. Yeah.
3: So um, so there's there and and just from a from a labor perspective like trying to organize a industry that's dispersed and 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 temporary is just hard it's just not going to yeah. be conducive yeah um so there there is a a way in which this sort of uh decentralization of electricity can also be sort of part of that larger process of right disempowering Labor uh, unions, the working class.
1: But I guess my my like perspective would be if that energy is truly cheap. Well, so I guess like what I wanted to get at is yeah. Um, I read uh, I've not I've not read Capital. I did read Communist Manifesto, but one of my friends, kind of when we talk about stuff like this, he basically says that you know in Capital, I don't know if this is true or not. I'm sure you know a lot better than me, but like you know, one of the central things discussed is like the unit of labor. And -hmm. he's like, he actually thinks what it misses is like focusing on actually the unit of energy, which is like part Mm -hmm. of what labor may have represented over time. Like say moving from just manual labor to like ox or animal driven labor. And now we have machines and we can kind of, you know, continue to like drive things forward from that actually energy input, not, not labor input into the economy. And so I guess it's just to say that like if looking at the like energy versus label labor globalized thing, what it is saying is that there is some exchange between cheap energy and cheap labor. So if you have cheap energy, you can like afford more labor, like higher labor costs. And so I guess what I would say to that is like maybe not focusing on the solar and wind construction. But the industrial jobs that are brought in by having actually cheaper energy at home than, say, like Mm -hmm. oil shipped from Saudi Arabia. So I totally I don't think that building solar and wind are like great, you know, union jobs or or for labor. Like, I agree with you from that perspective. But if it truly drove like energy costs down, like maybe we could start competing at home from like a Mm. more expensive labor than, say, does exist in China.
3: And, and there is a a hope at least that the inflation reduction act will lead to onshoring of solar panel production right. and and that you know from a labor union perspective I, like manufacturing of anything whether it's cars or solar panels is like the sweet spot of, right, of, yeah, of, great. of labor organizing <laughs> like that's what yeah. you want so that would be great if that happened um china is going to be tough to compete with though, so we'll see
1: yeah regardless so i guess does that mean you're saying, I don't know, do you, ha- uh, the the energy is not cheap enough to compete with China or do you think that there's any exchange there like at all between cheap energy and labor, I guess?
3: Well, I think uh, China's labor costs have increased, um, but our labor costs are still going to be a lot higher. Um, so yeah, it's just, as much as we're talking about deglobalization and we're talking about Onshoring and fr- i guess friendshoring whatever this stuff is <laughs> like uh i'm still um you know um and this is you know this has been going You're on skeptical like, yeah i mean like yeah. this this trade war with china over solar panel like it's a thing right so um but without that kind of like tariff based protection of domestic industry like if china is able to just dump uh cheap panels made with you know slave labor from you know like it's going to be hard for domestic manufacturers to compete yeah. with that so but it will take you know real industrial policy uh and to to kind of insulate domestic manufacturers from that competition i would have to yeah. say
0: yeah yeah there's basically there's a what is it you get a 10 percent tax credit for like domestic content solar mm-hmm. projects now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is that enough? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> un- unclear to me.
3: Um, yeah, it's it's very some of these domestic content things. Some people think they're they're going to be really hard for people to abide by, um, but hopefully they can they can kind of. Because I I do think, think if... of all
2: the jobs the tax complexity is going to create.
3: <laughs> if only those lawyer union
2: jobs. Yeah. <laughs>
0: lawyers
3: and accountants
1: yeah yeah that's not necessarily the jobs we're uh we're no, looking for but, no,
2: but they, well, are, but they well, are definitely so, the winners of that,
0: soon, right? soon that soon that works just going to open ai and microsoft anyway so um,
3: yeah, there you go about oh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, machinery and automation thing.
0: Oh, yeah great. i'm um, ready
2: for a universal basic income that's
0: what i'm ready for okay nice. um utilities <laughs> do we, we i'm just thinking looking at the clock yeah
2: here. Yeah, tell us how you feel about utilities versus public power.
0: Well, that that that
2: Or what you want to talk
3: about?
0: Contrast,
3: yeah. I think, is uh because I see TVA as like this big utility, but it's public, right? Yeah. And um so uh what we argue in the piece is that um you know, utilities so for whatever reason the United States decided Again, it's called the there's a great history of of the electricity system and deregulation by Richard Hirsch called power loss, I think. And he calls it the utility consensus. Basically, they decided that you know it doesn't make sense to have multiple electricity providers competing with different wires. So we're just gonna yep. grant it's a natural monopoly. We're gonna grant these investor-owned firms, you know, monopoly territory, and we're gonna heavily regulate them through these utility, uh, public utility commissions that are going to regulate them and make sure they're not um, doing bad things. (laughs) Um, And so we just, we just sort of uh, accepted that there was going to be private for-profit investor-owned utilities that run these things. Um, And lo and behold, those private, you know, most famously like Samuel Insull and all these kind of like robber baron profiteers, like they took that natural monopoly and they did a bunch of corruption and they gouged consumers and they did a bunch of horrible things. And even after kind of... the I mean, this is deal- the
2: first shaming of Sammy Insull we've gotten on the spot. Yeah, usually he gets
3: big shouts. <laughs> I, I could see but it, yeah. I could see it, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really? People like Samuel Insull? For real? I think there's like a an economist type that's sort of like this person came up with the idea that there like should be a franchise on an area like um
1: I, think it, I wouldn't say, I don't know much about him, but it's, it's more like an acknowledgement of him creating a model that then was like extantiated in a lot of places. Not to say sure. clearly you don't like that model. I don't <laughs> actually, and a lot, I'm always talking about, uh, you know, utilities and franchise rights, but, um, you know, uh, but i don't know I, that i've heard everyone like love samuel insults more like acknowledging that fact i guess that he kind of well this is this
3: actually sets up what i was trying to say which is we happened to grant those systems to capitalists and and that turned out to be and then in the post-war period they you know they did this kind of hey we can make more money the more we we build power plants and we can yeah. you know charge on the uh the rate base from what we build so we'll grow and we'll build and we'll so it was just all profit oriented and and prone to corruption but but they were and again maybe samuel insull's behind it like to me like utilities were like at least these again coordinated planning systems that that controlled the whole grid as a social system and they had to really manage generation to to transmission to distribution and try to plan for the whole system and, and They're required
2: and, to provide social safety nets to people, right? You can put up power in the winter.
3: Yeah. And and they did integrated resource planning. They and so to me, like the electricity system is such a obviously interconnected coordinated system. It makes sense to me to have a single entity that is in control of it and planning And so so what happened in the 1970s is we looked at how corrupt they were and how um, you know they were gouging consumers, so we thought we can do this better through, again, smashing them through deregulation and through breaking them up, and and then particularly breaking up the generation side into this kind of like new kind of wholesale markets where you have these independent power producers that can kind of compete to sell power to a grid. But to me, like that is way le- more chaotic and 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 haphazard and uncoordinated than the old utilities, which. E- even though they were horrible capitalists at least they kind of controlled the system so uh again and again like the tva is is a sort of public version of that sort of integrated planning utility model and so actually what i find is that a lot of environmentalists like their big villain is utilities right these evil utilities um but what what but who also hates evil utilities are like google and amazon all these kind of neoliberal people that want more deregulation want more marketization they want more like renewable energy certificates and and kind of like these highly uh and and again more merchant generators more independent power producers and those independent power producers don't need to care about the grid they just need to care about their own profit their own bottom line and and so i actually we argue in the piece that like if you're a socialist like you should be more on the side of utilities and unions who yeah yeah i do love
1: that perspective i've seen fred put out there as well like google they're not trying to like they just don't want to pay for the grid for everyone you know what i mean like it's not like they're not like you know super you know uh benevolent interests here or anything like and I mean
2: we talk about we do talk about that i feel like a lot on this podcast and like the the social safety net of the grid and like getting into this like how deep do you go in someone's costs right like if i you know if you live really far down a road in a rural area like should you be paying more because Mm -hmm. you have like more wires going to you and like the grid wasn't built out that way but as we talk about it more and more now like people sort of start to yeah like nickel and dime how you think about the grid i'm but I, I do struggle, though, with the like, and maybe this is a utility versus public power, but I actually it's one of my big fears about public power is that it makes it very political. And so mm-hmm. my concern around like climate dealing with climate change when you have mm-hmm. so many states where mm-hmm. the if it was public in that state, they would not like maybe they would do nuclear, but probably they would just do gas and coal. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Yeah, And so that's actually where I'm kind of like, well, markets at least have some driving force of like general public opinion and like where they think that's going over this Mm -hmm. like political ideology.
0: Mm. And so
2: that's where I start to be like, well, that and like how I see some public institutions like get run and then get budget cuts. That like those are like my two big concerns. Is one, I'm like, I don't want anyone doing like coming after budget cuts to like fund the police for my public utility. Like, I want my utility to run well. <laughs> yeah. And then two, like, what happens in the states where when it goes public, or let's say it's federal and an uh, administration comes in that climate change isn't a thing that they care about, um, or is a the thing they actively don't believe in. Um, how does like that sway? And that is just a little bit less impacted when you have that private group who, granted, took them 30 years longer to get on board that climate change <laughs> is a thing than um, <laughs> the average public. I'm not saying they did great, um, but I feel like a lot of them are kind of there now, um, and it would be a little harder to switch. So yeah, how do you think about that with public power?
3: It's the interesting. I was just... I was just reading this old report on the TVA from the 1930s where they talked about how their, their um principle was that um everyone should pay the same rates regardless of where they're located. So there was this kind of like, you know, like the Pony Express, like postal service like ideology that like we're gonna deliver the mail for the same cost regardless. It's just like this sort yeah. of universalist commitment. Um, and so uh I do think that i hate to keep hammering on but we can learn a lot from that era of the of the new deal and the tva because they weren't just about building energy um and electrifying the countryside and rap they were they were really about building lots of cheap energy and 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 really yeah. lowering the price of energy for masses of people and i think if if you had a public power system that was committed to you know, we're going to lower your electricity bill or, you know, offer you free electricity. That's what socialists would dream about, you know, electricity as a human right. Uh, And the TBA slogan in the 30s was electricity for all, which sounds kind of like a Bernie Sanders like slogan. (laughs) Um, So if that if the public entity comes in and starts really improving people's lives through electricity, with cheaper rates and with uh you know uh, not just safety nets but like just cheaper across the board for everyone, uh, then people would uh, not need to c- even get into the culture war over climate change. They would just be like, "I like this public power, <laughs> like yeah, I-, I like this public entity." And and so the the theory is that you know you you sort of build a constituency by by delivering real material gains to by the way again a population who's been suffering through sort of austerity and inequality for several decades now yeah um and and then you build support for that project through those those uh material gains and 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 not by some sort of like climate ideology of like we need to do this because of climate change per se well so i that's... don't think
1: that's by accident by the way but that's probably a whole other conversation as far as the culture war, you know, dividing, yeah. but on, on that point, and I know we're coming up on the, on the hard stop, which I had a feeling once we got going was going to be tough, but um, cause this is, this has been really fun. But um, I, I am curious just what you think of like the um, kind of path there, because one thing I always kind of reflect on, and maybe this is like a more kind of like James Burnham, Machiavellian, like real politic lens on things. But um, you look at where we are today versus say the 1950s when we did do, or even the 1930s, like the New Deal build-outs, like we're at 140% debt to GDP. Um, you know, we hate each other politically. We're like divided on everything. And like the 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 kind of public institutions we do have have seen like completely unable to do anything whatsoever. And even if we have made gains, it's like they've outsourced it to the private sector or something to that effect, which I think has gone very badly in certain cases and maybe well in others, you could argue. But um, I am curious, just like maybe you do accept that view or not. But one thing I always look at is like I'm very sort of hesitant to, or I know the, the problems of building core infrastructure through private means, However, when I was like sitting in my PhD program, I decided to start a business because I was just like, I don't know any other way to even start moving the needle on this stuff. So, like, that's my path that I have to go do something, mm-hmm. um, knowing full well like what that decision meant. So, I would love to hear like your perspective on how do you kind of re engage or remobilize like a strong public institution mm-hmm. that I just don't really see like existing in a, in a meaningful way in the US today
3: absolutely yeah yeah and you mentioned the debt to GDP and one reason that's so high is because we've just slashed taxes on the rich for decade after decade yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah and 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 uh that was another thing about the even the 1950s under Eisenhower the the tax rates on the rich were so high that, that it provided the funding for these big, projects right. big infrastructure
1: like 80 percent so, or something insane or
3: i don't know but, 90 95 90, yeah. for like you know the marginal tax rate on like the right highest right, income, right. income yeah yeah and so um you know like if you want to build a lot of big stuff you gotta tax the rich i i when when the green new deal was more sort of in the spotlight and very popular i i, I tried to get this slogan that didn't really catch on but it It was that we shouldn't be talking about taxing molecules. We should tax the rich because everyone's like talking about a carbon tax. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's so clear, like the solution to climate change is tax the rich. And actually taxing the rich is still in our society, incredibly popular. Like everyone supports that because most people aren't rich. Well,
1: because a carbon tax is regressive. I mean, yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? Why would we do that?
3: (laughs) <laughs> we all use carbon, and and as we saw in France, you know, if you tax carbon, masses can revolt, right? Right. And so, um, so, but anyway, I, I I think part of this neoliberal shift we've been talking about in the seventies was that capital got you know got fed up with this again this sort of um, liberal. Consensus where unions had a lot of power and, yeah. and government was actually trying to serve public need through this sort of redistributive Keynesian state. And so they got organized and they 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 really said enough of this and they started to uh regain state power for themselves, right? And so since the 70s, you've you know, it was uh, Buckley versus Vallejo in 76 that said money is now free speech and you can start to use money in political action committees and sort of money yeah. takes over politics. And in the state itself, the government, whether you're you know, increasingly the Democrats or the Republicans have been completely taken over by Wall Street and other corporate interests. So yeah. most, most everyday people don't see the, the state or the government as something that is doing anything for everyday people. And and so people are pretty cynical and yeah, like you said, they don't, we don't have a feeling that like this big kind of public investment is even possible anymore. But, um, but again, that I, I have to think as, as a person that thinks historically that that kind of, uh, can't last forever. And, and right. sooner or later there'll be kind of movements and organizations that can start to sort of win. yeah.
1: I would even say they're probably feel that way because they know how captured the public institutions are by these corporations. Right. Like, and there's no real, I don't know. I just don't see an outlet for that yet. That's really like kind of come together in a positive way, but um, you know, I mean, I would hope
3: it does. Just yesterday in New York state, um, you know, that it looks like the budget deal is going to include this build public renewables act, which, we don't need to get into i mean i've been somewhat critical of the campaign but one thing i will say that is very good about the campaign and these democratic socialists of america that spearheaded it is that the 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 reason this is going to get passed is because they've won a lot of elections uh in the state legislature and they built this kind of socialist caucus in the new york state legislature that was pushing for this uh public power thing and it and and they they generated support for those legislators through this kind of um, anger that people had toward the capitalist electricity system. You know, people are fed up with blackouts and higher bills and, and all this stuff. And so this kind of uh, this vision of public investment for, to solve climate change, but also to like improve people's lives through lower utility bills. Like it was part of that, That that movement um, that built up all this power in the state legislature, and it's now won a kind of huge shift towards public power. So that's, you know, uh, a model that we haven't seen a lot of in the last several decades, but is pretty inspiring for today, I'd say.
1: Yeah, I've not. Was, I mean
2: I was curious. I, I was curious your thoughts on that. I know I've been seeing I've been seeing a lot of it and I've I need don't dig have time into to it. get. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: was like
4: "There's a whole
2: other, on this yeah. podcast <laughs> cuz we could go another hour easily. <laughs> but Yeah. It's, I think it's, I
1: mean, do we do we move into the, yeah, the wrap up? let's
2: move. I think let's move into the wrap up. Can
1: I do one more as part of the wrap up maybe as a lead in? Sure. I did I did love what you you said Matt about like it was a funny tidbit, like at least in the robber baron world, like they had, they, like there was like some central control. Yeah. Um. And so what, one thing I've always kind of, again, in that like real politic view is like, even in like a public controlled world, say with the grid, there's a lot of power in the hands of the people yeah. making those decisions. Like that yeah. is just some other elite ruling class. And so right. one, like. Do you agree that on that perspective? And two, like, why is that model still better than like a private? And I'm not saying like one or the other is like just or better or good, but I, I yeah. am curious, like, you know, there's kind of always is like a hierarchy in an elite and, and like the public model, does it still exist there? And and how is that better than like the Robert baron model, I guess?
3: Yeah. So public power is like not a um panacea. It's not gonna cure everything. It just to me, it like gives you uh, an option to have a much more broader set of criteria for investment and sort of planning yeah. of a system. So people, like I keep saying, like TVA is not just thinking about uh shareholder value and returns to their investment. They're thinking about a broader kind of public mission. So there's just a, uh, but, but TVA can be corrupted just as easily as right. a corporation can. So it does not guarantee that you're going to have good outcomes. I mean, there's some really, nasty, you know, people like to celebrate like rural electric co-ops and you learn yeah. about how these things actually operate and they're like these, you know, in the south, they're like these like all white boards and in, in, in like like a hundred percent um black communities yeah like these white supremacist institutions. So yeah um so there's not uh I just think that when you have the private sector in control they're Calculus is so narrow, focused on returns. And yeah, profits. not
1: like the at least in the public model, the goal mission stated is like the public yeah. good, like right. So, and the other yeah. thing
3: is that in in capitalism, there's no democracy, right? Like you have a board and a CEO that runs things like dictatorships, and and uh, you know shareholders can you know pressure, and there's sort of this kind of uh distributed, if you will, uh governance model of right. corporations, but to but uh, but it's not like in a public system where you could actually create institutions of democratic uh checks on the power of these elites yeah. that run it and actually have some sort of input coming from more grassroots and and more from the people. So there's there's ways to sort of democratize uh public power which wouldn't exist yeah. in the private sector.
1: Yeah. All right, okay. sorry guys. I I, no, I, I those, had to go, yeah. go no,
4: out of off on that. <laughs>
2: okay. All right. So Matt, you're you've been appointed the Energy Czar of America. Mm. Um maybe you want a different title, but <laughs> 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 Um you can you can do one policy
1: mm.
2: change. What do you do?
1: Whatever you want. Mm.
3: I would like I mean I would I would like to um uh I think I would like to nationalize <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was waiting for it. Yeah. 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 You like, yeah. It. Would you
2: like to nationalize the grid?
3: Nationalize um, the grid because Would
2: you give it all to TVA
4: or would yes? You create all you. <laughs> what
1: about like would you federalize the grid? Like so like Yeah, like how own their own grids like maybe no, I just, national. <laughs> national. I, I was trying that. to get you there's,
3: there. There's so many problems with the the sort of, you know, even when you get to transmission planning when it's crossing state and you get these yeah. different public utility commissions that have way different. Um, and uh, it again, um, it just seems to me that uh, this is a it's really a planetary crisis, but it's a national crisis and. And 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 this electricity is, is such a shared um, thing that all of us rely on and depend on. So that if we could somehow plan it as the interconnected national system that it needs to be, I think that would be a lot better. Um, the other question, if you nationalize the grid, that might just imply transmission and distribution. But uh, I would also like to bring generation in there <laughs> and nice. just yeah. start full, planning out. Planning full out, vertically yeah. integrated
2: one yeah. grid. Yes. That sounds good. <laughs> awesome. Um. Okay. So our next section, lightning rounds, dope or nope. So <laughs> we will say something and you tell us if you think it's dope or nope. You don't okay. have to provide any context, you but can. you can okay. if you want. Okay. Um. Where am I starting here? You got to uh, yeah. start
1: at the top. I know you're, All I know right. you're trying to skip it, but go All for right.
2: it. All right. Davos.
1: Oh, nope. Big Nope. <laughs>
4: Okay, oh, what about no.
1: Dervos? Will you come to Dervos and, that, and speak? What is dirt? Is that your Dervos like... is our counter position to Davos? It's our it's our like new energy politics summit. You know, Do obviously you actually we have, have focus. We threw the first one, we called it Dirt Fest. Because oh, um, I thought Durvos push- was a little aggressive. I'm pushing hard for Dervos, just I mean, come on, but <laughs> Uh, that sounds dope. That sounds dope to me. Yeah. All right. Well, that's like, like, like I'm
2: not in a safe space. So I'm going to say Bring dope. a bunch of your
1: public power friends and, you know, we'll we'll hash it out.
3: I think it's clear from this conversation that I enjoy talking about energy nerd stuff. So I, I'm sure what? I could find a lot <laughs> yeah. of outlets for that at this. So, yeah. Um,
2: yeah. Nice. ESG.
3: Oh, uh, that's a big nope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we saw that, uh you know... As soon as like the legislatures in Texas uh, start to say that this is woke capitalism, we're going to boycott you. Oh. And Larry Fink is like, Oh, it's fine. We're not, we're, we're investing in fossil fuels just like before it's fine. It's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please don't boycott yeah. us.
4: Precisely.
2: <laughs> um, the DOE loans program.
3: Oh, super dope. I'm big. Uh, that Jigger Shaw, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, he's been, you know, a huge uh, nuclear sort of proponent and, and that, you know, he's, he's a proponent of all clean energy, which is, and he's, I think he really sort of understands the need for firm generation for one thing. And, and, and again, a lot of planning that's needed to kind of interconnect all these things. So I've been really impressed
0: with that, that whole, that whole thing. That's so interesting. Like his, his past life, he was a decentralizer. Yeah.
2: We call him the granddaddy of Durr's.
0: <laughs> I used to listen, was he on a podcast called The Energy
3: Gang? Was yeah, he on that? He was. Yeah, yeah, he was. And I remember yeah. like I, I feel like I I don't wanna I feel like I was annoyed with him on that podcast, but now more and more when I listen to him, I'm like, yes, he gets well, it. <laughs> we were Sometimes when you enter
2: the public sector, you know it changes. Yes. You. Yes. <laughs> but
1: he is giving loans to private companies for the money or not pro- profit driven you know some of them are public but you know you
2: got to work in the framework you know james
1: yeah 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 well we because not- we were talking on sunday we were like would fred and matt like like jigger or not because it's like public centrally planned pu- institution but like
3: Profit-driven private He said, "He said, dope, James.
2: Don't don't, yeah, don't, don't trying, take
4: I'm this away. To push from him us. off. Okay, you're right, you're right. <laughs> in the
3: out. context politically we're in, I think he's like right moving in the right direction. We still yes. have a long way to go, but, right? Yes, gotcha.
2: I know we spoke very briefly on this, but New York Build Public Renewables Act.
3: Oh man, that's a, that. Yeah, I will say dope because I think I love the idea of it. Um, the critique I published." Uh, with Fred was more about the kind of coalition they built. I think it was very much a green NGO coalition as opposed to a labor yeah. coalition, but the idea of empowering NYPA, which is this FDR, you know, when FDR was governor, he set up NYPA that, sorry, New York public, uh, New York power authority, which harnessed this, you know, the, the hydro resources of the state to build all this sort of clean public, uh, energy. And then, um, and, he set it up in the 1920s so empowering nipa to build out clean energy generation is a brilliant idea but the way in which the coalition kind of um became fully driven by kind of the the typical kind of nonprofit industrial uh, uh, environmental complex yeah. i found frustrating because to me as a socialist we we should have been more aligned with the the unions and the workers in the system yeah. and it, it wasn't that so.
1: I do love that point that you guys are making consistently that like I think just needs to be you know shouted from from more rooftops but um yeah on like the NGO labor kind of divide there um yeah. that we see pop up in a lot of different kind of arenas I guess
2: mm-hmm. um I don't know if we want to how how far we want to go down this list. Um, bodega just batteries.
1: Bodega batteries. We got it. A- <laughs> I think Duncan probably added that one. Oh, yeah, added batteries. Batteries. oh no, you did that. Nice.
2: Bodega, yeah, batteries and bodegas.
1: Yeah, that sounds. Centrally, I wanna know, you want I to know. I want to know. I want to know if they do Nip-
3: Nip- at all. Yeah.
0: provided. Nip- 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 provided Nipa Nipa bodega batteries. All right, dope.
2: Dope.
0: Hey, yes. he, he shrugs. You read Durpill joke. Okay. <laughs> if
2: anyone from NYPA is listening to this podcast, please go build batteries in bodegas. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> All right.
0: We got. Any I mean, final, you're going franchise rights. Oh, yeah. There's two more franchise rights. So sorry. What? Like, yeah. I, what I, is I a franchise? Think right? I know what that is. Like the. The natural monopoly. Investor owned utilities
1: oh. given a yeah, the, the exclusive franchise monopoly, right to yeah. build, you know, infrastructure.
3: What well, again, I like the idea. Well, so a... you want I...
1: probably the public to build, yeah. to have the franchise, I'd imagine.
3: Like and the... again, <laughs> a lot of countries just that's they they just they have utilities, but they're public, right? And again, right. Yeah, we yeah. don't ever question that our water utilities are public and that people don't pay the cost of production of that water. They they get they might pay a marginal water bill, but Do you th-
1: do you think if there's a public water utility, someone can drill a well in their backyard? Um,
3: or sh- yeah, that's that's a. Interesting- or should I mean, they
1: not own the yard? I don't know, but I don't know how far but you then take can the, they, the but property rights. But then can
2: they rights. take a hose and sell it to their
1: neighbor? <laughs> no, <but>
3: I- <laughs> no, 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 just the hole, just the, just the. I I live in the country, so I actually have a well, and um- <laughs>
1: yeah, well there wow. you go. But I often oh. am very... I'm That's very, solar um, on your roof, man. It's the same thing. I do too. have
3: solar on my roof, too. <laughs> I don't have oh, a we battery. Outed you. I don't have a battery. Yeah. And I and I, I installed the solar panels before I became underpilled. Solar. Oh, okay. <laughs> the world let it slide. And I became really disillusioned when I realized I lived in one of the cloudiest regions of the country, <laughs> which is in the, uh, this, this sort of snow belt, like uh, Lake Ontario cloud. Uh, anyway um but uh what was i gonna say um i was gonna say something
1: the about... w- well in your backyard
3: oh yeah so i often am just jealous of my friends that have public water because it's so mm. easy it's cleaner you don't have to worry about like this like, yeah. water softening and all this kind of so if i had public water why would i drill a well it's like this incredible right. system that's always there and you don't need to worry
1: about okay it. that's a good answer <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right last one uh hvdc so this is basically the high voltage super grid
3: uh yeah I think that's cool particularly if we can harness um the kind of renewable resources in again like the plains states and the desert Southwest yeah. where it's sunniest and windiest is not necessarily where it's most populated so I think I think we want to be able to transmit that stuff very long distances so dope yeah that's dope
0: Cool, cool. Can I ask one final question? Sure. This is this is a good <laughs> wrap-up. Yeah. This is a good wrap-up question, I think. So, like, generally, me as a person and my politics, I, I'm quite uh, aligned with the ideals of like public ownership and universal service. Um, I have a lot of personal, um, challenge. I, I. I'm nervous of central planning, Mm -hmm. Um, not for any like particular, you know, market focused reason or like libertarian reason, but I just, there, there feels to be a lot of hubris in the notion that a few minds can come up with the right system under Mm -hmm. which we all will live. It feels like there's a concentration risk, Mm
3: -hmm. not in
0: capital or in in anything, but in minds, right? And it's something I really struggle with um, because I haven't come across a vision for public ownership and universal services that at least describes this or, you know, has a view for how to amend this. And of course, you know, it's not, there's no like polar thing in one direction or the other, but like to the person I just described myself, (laughs) how would you make the case for, for central planning? Well, on a societal level, I can, you
3: know, it might not always make the most sense, and you don't. You definitely, again, you want democratization, so you don't want just a, yeah, few people in a smoke-filled room uh, <laughs> making all the decisions with no democratic uh, input
0: or. Check. It's funny so- we we've used exactly that yes. <laughs> before to describe the PJM capacity market. Yeah, <laughs> so that you're getting right. Yeah. So. So societally,
3: I think it's a concern, but I will say that, and this is another piece we, or sorry, another point we try to make in the piece, which is that that actually electricity is a very, again, very weird, bizarre system that's very different than most of society in that it's this heavily integrated system where supply always has to be balanced with demand at all times. So therefore, you actually have to have some kind of centralized planning of this mm-hmm. grid system otherwise it it completely goes you know it, it collapses and it has a lot of problems so what's really fascinating to me is how um these uh rtos and you know pgm and all the rest of them they've tried to kind of like create markets for a system that still needs to be heavily planned <laughs> you know so they, they they create these kind of like Byzantine like you know like there's the capacity Yeah, what market, do you think the stuff.
1: ordc is that's a central that's a central planned you know price mechanism it's you know so
3: yeah it's like the day ahead market the spot market and all these kind of like um complicated market seems but ultimately these uh rto areas they're called balancing areas and they have to balance the load uh with supply at all times so that that there's, they are kind of the central planner planners of this kind of quasi market system they've constructed. So I think electricity needs a lot more central planning than a lot of other parts of our economy and other parts of our society. Um, And but still, even if that's the case, we should have democracy. And one thing that is really problematic about uh, these RTOs is they're not even public at all. (laughs) They're, they're nonprofit entities that like do their planning in like uh, in yeah smoke filled rooms? They're like very opaque. They're not subject to much pub- public input at all.
0: Yeah, just do a control F for the word stakeholder in their filings. It's yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. So, like public utility commissions were classically like they're very easy to be uh, captured by the private interest, the utility interest, and they're corrupted. But at least they're public. At least they have like all this yeah. public comments and public hearings and all this kind of stuff. But but yeah like uh, New York ISO and these Rtos are not that right They're, So you'd
1: okay. say they they already are public uh, centrally planned and at least if you go public you have the opportunity to make it more democratic or if yeah. done right, you would make it more democratic, which exactly. would still
0: be the goal
4: mm-hmm.
0: okay so that plus like power is a electricity power <laughs> is yeah. a is a good use case for central planning basically like whether or not we need to own farms in order to issue food stamps is like a different question Uh right. versus like, do we need to own power plants to have universal reliable yeah. power? Yeah. Okay.
3: Now, if you really imagine this, like where we do all go off grid and everyone has solar panels and batteries and that somehow works, then maybe, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. <laughs> you know, like, but we still live, again, where everyone's connected to this grid system and it's a heavily coordinated socialized. And that system, is. I, I still don't fully understand how they actually can balance, like how they know when someone's going to turn on their washer and, you know, the the generation yeah. goes that like that to me is just like amazing. Like they're able to balance this at all times. But to do to balance that, you're going to have to have a whole lot of planning and, and centralized coordination, I would say.
1: All right. Whoa. Well, we're well beyond the hard stop now. We appreciate it. We <laughs> no, do. end the final really final end is a quick, we just say big shouts, like shout outs to whoever uh, you want. Um, I would say big shouts to you and Fred um, <laughs> who are, I think some very unique voices out there that we, you know, you're two of my favorites to kind of follow along with. Um, Thank you. But uh Yeah.
3: So, we, so I'm supposed to shout out. Oh, somebody. yeah.
1: Anyone. I mean, I just. I, I, guess, oh, shout yeah.
3: out, I was going to shout out Jigger. And now we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, we can do big <laughs> nice. shouts to Jigger. Yeah, shout to Jigger, of course. <laughs> no, I would. Um, I got asked this on a podcast before, so I'll just use it again. There's an incredible organization called Labor Notes. And what they are about is trying to rebuild a, a, a militant and democratic um, union movement, labor movement. And, and they they do believe that the union movement is more um, powerful when it's more democratic. So they've been behind this kind of move to democratize the UAW, which just had this huge I don't know if you follow this at all, but they just had a huge sort of turnover in their power structure and their election. Their president mm-hmm. is sort of this militant. And so Labor Notes has been trying to, you know, train more sort of militant activists to kind of uh, build more fighting democratic unions. And um. And in fact, when I was talking earlier about how unions were really on the front lines resisting deregulation in the 1990s, I was drawing from a Labor Notes article that was talking to workers Mm. and union activists that were trying to fight that um, deregulation fight. So to me, like, uh, you know, kind of like what we've been talking about, the union movement can be kind of like this heavily top down, centralized, uh, smoky rooms, corrupt, kind of like utilities. (laughs) <laughs> but it can also be heavily, you know, democratic and, and you know, uh, building right. this like people power against corporations. And so I think uh, if we're going to build power in the union movement, we need that kind of rank and file kind of building uh, mass membership uh, power from the bottom up. So they're the organization that's really trying to do that. Um, and they're amazing. So.
0: Nice, nice. And who was the there was someone else you mentioned. Oh, the journalist. Who was the journalist you mentioned? That
3: wrote about the deregulation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, just for for shout outs, there was someone who said this great journalist from. So the organization, the, pro- the Prospect, the Prospect.
3: Oh yeah, Lee Harris.
0: That's oh true. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I've Lee seen Harris... her nip, nipping at our industry, and it's been it like she's asking very good questions. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah.
3: she she that piece um, she wrote about the solar industry showed that. You know, it's it's a pretty pretty tough one for workers and unions, and there's a lot of like temp work and, and and temp agencies that try to contract out like really precarious workers to do this work. So, and she's done. She actually wrote a great piece about um, the Build Public Renewables Act and how it how a lot of the unions in electricity were were opposing it, and so she is actually really asking a lot of difficult questions and 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 really good stuff. So. Cool.
2: Some All right. Thanks, Matt. This has been great. Thanks,
1: Matt. Come to Thank Dervos. You.
3: Yeah, I'd I love think... to. I'll wait for the wait. invitation. <laughs> I don't know. We can
1: talk about markets, not markets, but I do think we all probably agree that the current neoliberal order right now could use some more democratic uh, processes. So, And just um. consistency
2: of thought. I really, I think, appreciate <laughs> yeah. that. All of your feelings are like logically consistent with each other (laughs) it's always nice that's good to hear
3: (laughs) (laughs) which isn't true of a lot of things
2: in the energy industry so
3: that's true yeah (laughs) a lot of contradictions out there yep cool thanks Meg.
2: awesome
4: thanks so much thanks
3: matt appreciate it yeah
4: see ya